0: Good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to have you here uh, with us today to discuss uh, George Selgin's new book, "Good Money." Uh, there's some seats down front here. If you if you want to come down and sit down, you don't have to stand up for the whole thing. Uh, George's book is extremely timely. It's a it's a book on economic history, basically, uh, but. At the current juncture uh, with the financial crisis, uh, it has a lot of lessons to teach us. Uh, the full title of the book is Good Money, Birmingham Button Makers, the Royal Mint, and the Beginnings of Modern Coinage, 1775 to 1821. What happened was that the Royal Mint at that time failed to satisfy the monetary needs of an industrialized, uh, industrializing economy in Great Britain. Uh, And private mints uh, emerged spontaneously to satisfy that demand by minting what they called commercial coins. Uh, This is another good example of what Hayek called spontaneous order uh, and the importance of competing currencies or competing monies. Uh, Today, what we're stuck with is basically pure fiat money, discretionary government fiat money. Uh, The gold window was closed back in 1971. The dollar, obviously, is no longer convertible into anything except other little pieces of paper. Uh, So we benefit quite handsomely by having the dollar as an international reserve currency because we get goods and services from places like China, and they get little pieces of paper, either uh, dollar bills or uh, U.S. government bonds. So we're getting real goods and services in exchange for pieces of paper, not a bad deal. Uh, Now, when you have a discretionary government fiat money like we do today, which are inconvertible currencies, it means the value of that currency is simply a function of trust in government. Uh, And the key question today uh, that we advertised is that we said, can government be trusted with the money supply? But a better title would have been, should government be trusted uh, with the money supply? So... We're going to have George discuss his book, and I also want to make a plug for the Cato Journal, which I edit, if George doesn't mind, uh, because we just came out with a new uh, issue of the Cato Journal on lessons from the financial crisis, and there's some very good papers in here, and it's uh, available outside. Uh, George Selgin is professor of economics at uh, West Virginia University, where he holds the BB&T chair in free market thought, and he's also a professor of economics at the uh, University of Georgia, where he teaches monetary economics. He's taught at George Mason University and also the University of Hong Kong. Uh, George has written widely in the area of monetary economics and is a leading authority on monetary history, uh, also free banking and competitive currencies. He's the author of several books besides Good Money. Uh, they include Bank Deregulation and Monetary Order. Uh, readings in Money and Banking, and uh, his first book, uh, The Theory of Free Banking, which I highly recommend. Uh, He holds a PhD from New York University, and uh, it's a great pleasure to have George here. So let's uh, help welcome George Selgin.
1: Thank you very much, Jim, and thank all of you for coming to what must be a somewhat unusual uh, Cato book forum. When I first broached the idea of, of a forum uh, to the folks at Cato, including Jim, uh, there was a little bit of concern. Uh, they all seemed to like my book enough, but uh, the question was, can I convince the audience of the policy relevance of a book that is, after all, about coining money during Great Britain's Industrial Revolution, which is to say two whole centuries ago. Uh, How could such a story be shown to be relevant in policy circles today? Well, I managed to make the case to to Jim and, and other folks, and so now let me try to convince you. Let's start with something you all, no doubt, already care about, which is the present financial crisis. I'll get to the book eventually, but be patient. Unless you've been uh, uh, living on Mars, you presumably know that the Federal Reserve System played an important part in generating the present crisis through its mismanagement of monetary policy earlier this decade. That is not a minority view, that is not a Cato Institute view. It is becoming the consensus view among monetary economists, some of whom, myself included, have done some rather fancy simulations to show that the bubble in the housing market would have been anywhere from oh, uh, only two-thirds to – uh, as great to non-existence had the policy been uh, more conservative and more in line with orthodox recommendations for focusing on inflation targeting. In any event, uh, <clears throat> uh, the Fed certainly played a big part. So, by the way, did other central banks, if only through following the Fed's lead What many people, though, don't appreciate so well is that mismanagement of money and mismanagement of money serious enough to cause serious economic crises has been the rule rather than the exception so long as central banks have been in charge of managing money. Consider the Fed's record. It was established in 1914 ostensibly to end financial panics like the one that had broken out seven years before. Within four years of the Fed's existence, starting from what was then a very low rate of inflation, the inflation rate had passed 20%. A lot of people don't know about that or remember it. It was the worst inflation in U.S. history except for one during the Civil War. Then, of course, came in 1920 the most severe deflation in U.S. history, Fortunately, there was no new deal or stimulus package following that deflation, so the economy had recovered within a year. But then the Fed was at it again, fueling what became the great bull market of the late 1920s. I don't have to tell you about what the Fed did after that. You all presumably know the story of the great monetary contraction that started the Great Depression. Uh, Then, just as the economy was beginning to struggle to its feet in the mid-1930s, the Fed decided to double bank reserve requirements, plunging it into depression yet again. Then came World War II with serious inflation disguised by price controls, of course. And then, well, okay, you get the general idea. The Fed's record has been lousy throughout its existence, And the same, by the way, can be said for other central banks around the world. In fact, we have to remember that the Fed is one of the best. That's why the dollar is, relatively speaking anyway, so popular even now. The typical central bank's record has been far worse. Somewhere, if you will, between that of the Fed and that of, say, the central bank of Zimbabwe. So uh, why and this is the question that is really at the heart of my book, why do we put up with it? Why do we let governments manage money in the first place when they routinely make such a botch job of it? Well, the answer the central bankers uh, would give is a twofold answer. First, they, uh, and more fundamentally, They would argue that only governments are trustworthy enough to issue money or only government authorities can issue trustworthy money. And then they would also add that uh, financial panics in the absence of central banks would be even more serious than they are with central banks in place. I want to address that second argument, but then I want to get around to the more fundamental one about only governments being trustworthy. Uh, the argument that panics would be even worse without central banks is false on two grounds. First of all, it's empirically false in that uh, uh, the pre-central banking panics uh, were not as bad, certainly not in this country, as the post-central banking uh, panics. The worst of the pre-Fed panics was that of 1907, and all three of the panics that broke out within the next within the first 20 years of the Fed's existence were far more serious than that of 1907. Uh, But also, the pre-Fed panics were not a result of unhindered markets, but were themselves products of unwise and misguided government intervention in the U.S. financial system, most of it dating to the Civil War period. Uh, I can't go into detail about the causes of those crises because I did promise I would get around to the Industrial Revolution and coinage, and I will, but I'll, I will at least suffice by – uh, 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 settle for pointing out to you that Canada during the 19th century and right up to the 30s avoided major final financial crises without a central bank. It relied instead on, de- on, on a completely decentralized and private commercial currency system with notes issued by various large uh, nationwide banks. That was a famously successful and stable system. In England, we could tell a different. Uh, in, regarding Great Britain, we could tell a similar story. England suffered repeated financial crises in the 19th century. Scotland managed to avoid them. England had a central bank. Scotland had a decentralized free banking system. Well. This brings me, though, to the more fundamental argument that is given for government control of money and for the existence of central banks, which is the claim that only governments can be trusted to supply money. That claim dates back to ancient times. Its roots lie not in paper money, where it's, uh, to which it's applied these days mainly, but to coinage, to coins. It was claimed by ancient governments, kings and princes themselves mainly, that only they could be trusted to coin money. And this claim, which came to be embodied in a dogma, was the basis, became the basis of the so-called sovereign right of coinage or the coinage prerogative of government. It's this ancient coinage prerogative that is the ultimate foundation for the entire modern apparatus of government management of national money supplies, including central banking. The Federal Reserve's authority, for example, rests solely its legal authority authority on Congress's constitutional power to coin money which is, again, just the old ancient and medieval prerogative of coinage being continued into modern times. Of course, ancient and medieval governments enjoyed many prerogatives of which modern governments have been thankfully deprived, including the prerogative of granting all sorts of monopoly rights. So how is it that this coinage prerogative alone among all these monopoly prerogatives has managed to survive intact into modern, in, right into modern times. And the answer is that people, including economists, uh, despite economists' general opposition to monopoly and also despite their knowledge of how governments have throughout history abused their monetary and especially their coinage powers – Uh, they believe in the ancient claim that if you let governments coin money, you will end up with bad money. Uh, Oh, sorry. Yes, thank you. That if you let the private sector coin money, you will end up with bad money. Thank you. So the question I wanted to ask and that I began, uh, that I asked myself in beginning my research is, what if this ancient claim on which all modern government regulation of money rests, is wrong. What if it can be proven wrong? What if it can be shown that the private sector, if ever, ever it's given a chance to coin money, in fact does a better job than governments have done? Well, if that could be done, then it would, of course, mean that the entire entire legal foundation for government control of money is basically rotten. So that brings me finally to good money. I began this book by asking, has there ever, in fact, been a case where coining was somehow, despite ancient and medieval dogmas, left to private enterprise? And if so, what was the outcome? In particular, was it the case, as so many economists believe, that Gresham's law led to bad money driving good money out of circulation, or did the opposite happen? Of course, the title of my book answers the question. The story in brief, and of course I must be very brief, is that in the 18th century, the uh, British economy found itself without any decent coins for retail trade and especially for wage payments. The Royal Mint was producing hardly any silver coins because silver was legally overvalued. Gresham's Law does apply to government coinage. And how? That's how it came to be formulated in the first place. Uh, so no silver came to the mint as a result of it being overvalued. And copper coinage, Do you have some pictures. You can look at the copper coinage that the mint was striking at the time. These are half pennies on the first page. Uh, to make a very long story short, the government gave up co- coining copper partly because of complaints about the distribution of the stuff, too much in some places, though none at all elsewhere, but mostly because it was being so aggressively counterfeited. It was easy to counterfeit, as these pictures should make clear. You see on the top an actual legitimate uh, regal halfpenny in this kind of typical state they were in as of the 18- 1780s, and at the bottom, a fake. Anyone could fake those coins. So the Mint stopped coining copper, no copper and no silver, hence no money for most payments. It's then that the private market stepped in, because the government refused, despite entreaties from ent- on Enterprise to supply decent coins, private uh, uh, entrepreneurs, beginning with major industrialists, started to strike their own coins and By the early 1790s there were no fewer than twenty distinct private mints striking custom made coins that were issued all over England and other parts of Great Britain that supplied the bulk of the money used for wage payments and retail exchange during those crucial decades, that crucial decade of the 1890s, and also another episode a little later of the Industrial Revolution. Without this private money, it couldn't have happened, it couldn't have continued. Now, um, if you turn the page, I don't have time to elaborate the many ways in which this stuff was better than the government stuff. Of course, the first way in which it was better was there was plenty of it, enough to make trade possible. There was no inflation based on it. It made up for a shortage. It didn't create a surplus. These coins were denominated in the same half penny and penny units that had been common before, so they didn't create unit confusion. But look at the engravings. First of all, they're beautiful. Okay, who cares? Collectors care, but never mind. From an economics point of view, they were very hard to counterfeit, and so they avoided the problem that had afflicted the official regal coinage and that had ultimately caused the royal mint to just stop producing the stuff but uh, they had many other advantages. If you look at the coin at the top, it's a typical example of the early issues. They were, by the way, heavier than the government's official issues. That top coin, one of the first, they were struck 16 to an ounce for the penny unit, which is, of course, a higher weight than the government's 23 pennies per ounce. But generally speaking, the quality was better. The best single The best single statistic I could cite to prove that point is simply this, that in most towns, in most towns where private and regal coins could potentially be used in exchange, private tokens or coins commanded a 100% premium over the other coins, which is to say you had to pay twice as much if you tried to use something that pretended to be uh, an official coin. That's the market's verdict, the one that really counts. Well, I'm not going to tell you all the details. I want you to buy my book, after all. But they were, of course, snuffed out. And they were snuffed out, in case you think they were snuffed out because they were harming the public and the government wanted the public to use the good money that was available from it. uh, it, It's easy to prove that that's not true. The government hadn't put its own coinage act together when it prohibited the issuance of private tokens, and people literally were left scrounging around. They even had to use worn-out French sous to make payments with. A government that was concerned about people having better money wouldn't force them to settle for having none at all. Well, to conclude, it's a long way from Great Britain in 1787 to the U.S. in 2007, but even the relatively distant past can harbor important clues to answering today's pressing public policy questions. One of those questions is must we forever remain at the mercy of the error-prone central bank of error-prone central banks and must we forever suffer from the financial crises they cause again and again and again? Ancient dogma tells us that we have no choice. History, on the other hand, suggests that government, government's coinage prerogative belongs in the same scrap heap into which most other medieval princely powers were tossed long ago. Perhaps central banks, which have developed out of that prerogative, ought to be scrapped as well. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, George. Uh, if, if you look at George's book, he's got some beautiful illustrations in here of these old coins. Uh, th- these would be great collector items. They're probably worth more than a penny now, George. They you know. yeah, are, right, yeah. but
1: not that much some of them. You'd be surprised. Uh,
0: our next speaker is uh, Steve Hankey. Steve is the professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's also co-director of the Institute of Applied Economics and the Study of Business Enterprise. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and in 1981-82, he served as a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. He's helped design and implement uh, many uh, currency reforms, uh, including in Argentina, Estonia, uh, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Ecuador and uh, we're waiting for him to do that in the United States. Uh, uh, he's a columnist with uh, Forbes magazine. Uh, if you uh, you should read his columns, they're very insightful, uh, and he's, of course, a prolific author. His most recent uh, publication uh, is a book uh, on Zimbabwe titled Zimbabwe, Hyperinflation uh, to Growth. Uh, I don't know how many of you know it, uh, but... Um, On the uh, Zimbabwean uh, currency, there is actually an expiration date, which is really a stupid thing to do because it increases the velocity of money and adds even more to inflation. But at least it is honest, it tells you. (laughs) Uh, Please help welcome uh, Professor Hanke.
2: Thank you, Jim. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me begin by congratulating George on a fine piece of scholarship and also to indicate that I think the Independent Institute and University of Michigan Press did a fine job in publishing a, a quite ha- handsome volume. Those photographs are really quite spectacular and tell part of the story in any case. Uh, they're better than the Xerox copies you have, but uh, in any case... My sentiments uh, about the book are are really summarized in uh, comments made by Milton Friedman when he endorsed the book and Leland Yeager. Now, Friedman, of course, we all know, uh, was a great economist, but he was a great uh, historian um, and monetary historian that knew how to use a sharp pencil, and he said that. George Selgin's story of how private enterprise solved a monetary problem that threatened seriously to retard the Industrial Revolution is a splendid piece of historical analysis. He has done an incredible job of unearthing all the details of what went on in Britain in the late 18th and early 19th century. It is a fine example of historical research. So that's Friedman on the book, and I I completely share those views. Now, Yeager uh, was a great... Not was. He is a great economist. But Yeager is really the master wordsmith uh, expert in, in the economics profession. And here's what Professor Yeager had to say. Good money is an impressive work of historical scholarship informed by economics. George Selgin is one of the few economists I know who take pains to make their writing not only correct but attractive. And his con- and his conversational style helps make reading the book a pleasure. Um, I think those two uh, experts really summarize my view of the book. Now, let me jump to something else. Uh, and that's a, a narrowed down kind of my contribution here because George got me motivated re- reading the book. And I have been working a lot on Zimbabwe, as uh, Jim had mentioned. But let's also remember what George said when he in his opening remarks, you know, well, who cares about this? I mean, what, what's the relevance of this, you know? And it follows my 95% rule and fits into this. The 95% rule, which actually isn't my rule, Armin Alton told me this in 1967 during a lecture he gave down at the University of Virginia, uh, which I was lucky enough to attend. In any case, the 95% rule is that 95% of whatever you read in economics is either wrong or irrelevant. And George is in the 5% category uh, always, and and this book clearly is. It it is very relevant. Now, let's talk about Zimbabwe. George, get your pencil out because I I really have some (laughs) numbers that are going to blow you away. Uh, In March of 2007, Zimbabwe entered a hyperinflation, a a Kagan-defined hyperinflation of inflation rate exceeding 50% per month. And, uh, and, and they continued to hyperinflate in, until uh, November, that's the last month in which I could calculate hyperinflation. And, and the thing uh, w- the system was kind of collapsing in, in November. At that time, the monthly inflation rate was 80 billion percent. Now, th- these numbers are hard to get your hands around, so what you do, you got to d- get different dimensions. It, that was 98% a day, so the price level was doubling in 24.7 hours. Now, that is not the world's record. The world's record's hungry, and and Hungary, uh, the monthly rate was 13 quadrillion percent. Now, of course, no one knows even how many zeros are in that, but it, it, it works out to be equivalent of a daily rate of 195 percent, and and the doubling rate was 15.6 hours. Now, to give you an example, uh, another recent one that this has almost gone completely unreported, but I, I was involved in in there as uh, an advisor prior to this in Yugoslavia, so I followed it very closely. That that Yugoslav hyperinflation under Milosevic peaked out in January of 1994 at 13, uh, 313 million percent. That's 65 percent a day. It was taking 1.4 days to double a price level. Now, we get Germany, the, th- the one we really know about, uh, in October of 1923 was the peak. It was only... 29,500 percent, the monthly rate, that was equivalent of a daily rate of 21 percent. It was doubling in 3.7 days. So Germany's just way down compared to Yugoslavia, Zimbabwe, and Hungary. That sets the, the scene a little bit, George. Now, George was talking to you about shortages of coin. Well, now we have notes. And in Zimbabwe there was a huge note shortage. There there were two types of money, uh, shall we say, circulating. One, uh, most of the money, the bulk of it, was done electronically. So if you wanted a large foreign exchange transaction or a debit card transaction or, or check writing or any of this kind of stuff, it was all done electronically. So you had a, a very high inflation rate with that, but there was a, a huge cash shortage. Uh, and there, was, there were symptoms of this uh, way back before the hyperinflation. The annual inflation rate in Zimbabwe got up to 56% in 2000. So using that as kind of a starting point and before we get into the hyperinflation, we've got a very high rate of inflation. But in 2002 we noticed that the state put cash withdrawal limits on bank accounts. So this is one symptom that you've got note rationing going on. And the limit in 2003, in July, was 3,000 Zimbabwe dollars you could take out. Now, that was equal to about one U.S. dollar at the time. You could buy about three loaves of bread with that. Uh, Also... In 2003, it was widely reported the the banks were complaining that, that even with the cash rationing at the retail end, the withdrawal limits, the daily withdrawal limits, the banks were complaining that even they didn't have enough cash to meet these limits, uh, people coming in. They said that they were getting about 10% of the normal supply of cash coming from the central bank. Now, let's look at the the premiums involved. Uh, the premiums involved, uh, George didn't mention the relevancy of, he wrote a Wall Street Journal article in January about Argentina. Argentina actually has a coin shortage right now. And and, and the coins are going at about an 8% premium. So, and, and, and George mentioned in England, you had a 100% premium. I take it that was a maximum or... No, this was not the premium... Above market value for the regal coins,
1: that was the the premium uh, on the private coins compared, compared to, to the. the regal pre- coins. Uh, okay, so but actually the regal coins were discounted fifty percent. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. We so so we have uh, the modern relevancy. Of the, of the premium argument is that you have a big cash, uh, a coin shortage in Argentina. This has been going on for over a year, and, and the, I don't know exactly what the uh, premium is now, but George reported I had a. a an email from an uh, Argentinian uh, journalist just yesterday saying si- it was six. Six, so it's so they're improving a little bit. You, you reported uh, a. Yeah, uh, fluctuates, I, I'm sure, uh, greatly. So, on to the Zimbabwe story. Uh, so we, we had the symptoms of, of a, of a note shortage. So I started looking into the thing after, I mean, I knew this was going on. And, and one thing I'd recommended in my book, which is on the Cato website, is a Cato uh, report. I think maybe it was even distributed if you picked it up coming in. Uh, one, I, I had three options to solve the hyperinflation. One was some form of dollarization. Two was a currency board. And three was private banking. They had private banking in Zimbabwe, uh, and it worked very well. And and so one thing I kept pushing, they kept saying, well, we got a shortage of notes. I said, well, let, let the banks print the notes. I mean, even if they're denominated in Zimbabwe dollars, you'd get rid of the so-called cash shortage. But let's look at the measurement of what was going on and just see what these premiums look like. Um, because it's a fairly interesting story. Uh, if you start with the uh, first point at which data really were available and you look at the electronic Zimbabwe dollar, what, what was being in the, in the payment system uh, transmitted electronically versus the cash, and look at the cash premium in April, of two thousand four, the cash premium is four percent, and and to calculate the cash premium, it's fairly easy because you just take the U.S. dollar value of the cash Zimbabwe dollar and divide it by the U.S. dollar value of the electronic dollar, and and then whatever that number is, you subtract one and you get a percent, and that, that's that's the answer. So the four percent comes from this. Uh, if you're taking notes in in uh, April of two thousand and four just to give you what was going on. Take one over five thousand you got a dollar over five thousand Zimbabwe dollars. Divide that by one over fifty two hundred and, and you get uh, one point o four subtract one and you get point uh, zero four and that 's your four percent so January two thousand and eight, the premium had gone up to a hundred percent. July 2008, there was a, a German... The, the notes were being supplied uh, from a printer in Germany. Geserke and Devrent were were printing these. The, the government put a lot of pressure on... The, the German government put a lot of pressure on the printing house and, the, and they stopped supplying notes. Uh, at that time, the premium was 131%, the note premium, and that was in july on july one on july thirty first after they stopped the premium had gone up to four hundred and seventy one percent so there was a, they were scrambling around trying to figure out what to do then the the situation just simply got worse with time August two thousand and eight the premium goes to five hundred percent september two thousand and eight it goes to one thousand seven hundred percent october two thousand and eight it goes to thirty five thousand nine hundred percent. And on the 3rd of November, this is before the system completely imploded and collapsed, it it was 900 million percent, the premium. So, George, I I don't think you're going to beat that one. But uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) at at any rate, there clearly was an enormous shortage of cash. Uh, The cash, uh, I I should say, the, the, the cash... Stop circulating completely. The the electronic did in November, okay, and and we go on through the the, the month of January, and on January thirty first, they they re-denominated the Zimbabwe dollar for the third time. They whacked twelve zeros off of the thing, and and people simply wouldn't accept it. it, it they 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 wouldn't use it for anything. It was such a nuisance and, and so discredited. That that people simply wouldn't accept it and do anything with it. So what happened? You ha- have really a Hayekian kind of thing going on here, with spontaneous dollarization was occurring all the time during the hyperinflation, but then it accelerated, and now the central bank has fortunately been quarantined. The Zimbabwe dollar is is finished. Uh, uh, Kurt Schuler actually sent me a a photo of, they're using it now on large billboards. They use that. It's cheaper than buying new paper. You just use the old Zimbabwe notes and put them up on these huge billboards and so on. So at any rate, uh, what... What this scholarship and historical research is, is showing us is something that is relevant today. I mean, it's relevant in Argentina. It was it was definitely relevant in, in Zimbabwe. And if you just think about the thing a little bit and collect the dot, uh, connect the dots, I, I think there's a lot you can run with even before we get to uh, abolishing the Fed, George, or anything like that. They're, they're, these things are going on all the time. And uh, when you think about it and think about the private alternatives that could take their place, uh, that is, take the place of the central banks, I think we, we have some, something to, to say and, uh, and, and really get a policy debate going in whatever country blows the thing up next. Thank you. Thanks
0: very much, Steve. Uh, of course, uh, Joe Xiaochuan of the uh, head of the Central Bank in China, just uh, recommended a new global uh, reserve currency uh, based upon the SDR, Special Drawing Right. Uh, and maybe we can address that uh, later on. Uh, I don't think anybody in this panel would think too highly of that uh, proposal. Uh, the, by the way, the German uh, firm that printed print the money in Zimbabwe was the same one that printed the money during the hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, I remember a couple. Well, back in the early 90s, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, f- this guy called me up one day and said he, he specializes in collected. He collects hyper inflated currencies. Uh, not as a collector, but uh, he resells them as uh, to collectors or to industries that want it. Uh, for example, the Russian. He was interested in Russian rubles, and he asked me if I could sell him. Uh, you know, get some contacts in Ru- uh, Russia for him at that time, Soviet Union. Uh, that would sell him maybe a couple tons of uh, rubles. Uh, So I gave him a couple people's names that I knew, uh, and uh, I don't know whether he ever did that, but what I read later on in the Wall Street Journal was that uh, they had used the Russian ruble, which was then worthless uh, because of the inflation and everything else. Uh, They found that it uh, made some very good roofing paper, Uh, So homes in uh, Russia now have uh, roofs that are made out of old rubles. Uh, So there is a business, I I guess, model there. Uh, Our next speaker is is Richard Rahn, Uh, Richard's chairman of the uh, Institute uh, for Global Economic Growth and also a senior fellow at Cato. Uh, he writes a weekly column for the Washington Times, which he's been doing since uh, 2001, I think it is, and uh, he, he writes often for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and uh, numerous other newspapers, and he, he's a very prolific author, and he's also uh, on the TV quite often uh, expounding uh, free market ideas. Uh, he's one of the most articulate spokespeople uh, uh, for the uh, free market and limited government uh, from 2002 to 2008, he served on the board uh, of directors of the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, a real hardship uh, uh, tour to of duty, I think. He had to go down to the Caymans uh, quite frequently. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, Dr. Ron served as vice president and chief economist of the U.S. Uh, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he's taught at Florida State University, at George Mason University, and at uh, uh, GW University, George Washington And he's currently on the Board of Visitors of the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. Uh, Richard holds an MBA uh, from Florida State University and a Ph.D. from Columbia University. Uh, Please help us welcome uh, Dr.
3: Ron. Well, it's good to be with you all today. First, I'll give a plug. Um, Today, pick up the Washington Times and get my column the return of the money snatchers, and it's why inflation is coming back. And um, for those of you who are too cheap to pay the 50 cents to get the times, you can get it online, but if you do that, they have a new thing where you're supposed to score how good the articles are, so make sure you give me the perfect rating. Um, (laughs) But... um, I was just talking to my old friend Steve here, and I think most of us agree inflation is coming back, and uh, I explained why. And I don't give the exact date. I was leaving that up to you, which day we're going to have the inflation come back.
2: We'll have another conference here.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve and I worked on the Bulgarian problem back in uh, 90 and 91 and then they finally got the currency board in 97 that you and Warren Coates did. It's, um, I really enjoyed George's book because uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his, his work and having been through some of these things as uh, uh, an advisor to governments and actually serving on the Cayman Island Monetary Authority Board, I was the one who was in charge of the currency in Cayman. The Monetary Authority issues the currency, regulates the banks, the insurance companies, mutual funds, and so forth. And we on the board would sort of divide up responsibilities. And I was had the, we had a little committee over at money. And um, I was chairman of that committee. And our friend Warren Coates was on there with me. And we'd have great issues that I think you would enjoy. One is here. I'll pass this around. This is a Cayman Island dollar. It's worth a dollar 20 it It's been fixed to the U.S. currency since um, 1973. And I want it back because it's my prop. It's not because it's so valuable. But one thing I want you to take a look at is the Queen's face. Um, Cayman is still a British crown colony, and it's got limited independence It's basically self-governing, issues its own currency and so forth. But they still keep up with this quaint thing of putting the queen's face on the currency. With the queen here, I think she looks about 30. You can make your own judgment. And we're going to issue new currency having the latest in the encryption so we get away from your counterfeiting problem. And one of the big debates that's going on is how old should the queen be on the currency? Now, the queen, I think she's 82 now, and they thought it would be unseemly to put an 82-year-old face on, but having a 30-year-old face seemed a little bit strange, too. Bermuda recently reissued their currency, and the queen's about 50 or so on their currency. And here, if one of you just wants to start passing this around, and you can make a judgment of how old the queen should be on the currency. But... <coughs> The Royal Mint still mints the Cayman coinage. And um, one of the big problems we were having is the penny costs more than a penny to mint. I wanted to put out the coinage for competitive uh, tender to see who could mint the coins most cheaply. This is several years ago, long before you'd written your book. And... Um, They were explaining to me that just couldn't be done, that the royal mint has always minted the Cayman coins and would have to continue to do so. And I could never find a law to this, but it was just, uh, I also suggested taking the queen's picture off the uh, currency because I thought that was a way to get around the aging process and only put on dead monarchs like we do with dead presidents, but they didn't like that idea either. Um, when you were talking about Yugoslavia and Zimbabwe, uh, S- Steve and I had worked in a number of the Eastern European countries in the early 1990s in the uh, Soviet Union, and I had been an advisor to the Gaidar government in Russia when they had their currency collapse through the dollarization of Russia at that time. And Viktor Yuchenko, who is now the president of Ukraine, at that point was the central bank. And his wife, who had a woman named Kathy Trimachenko, who had been, she was American, had been to the U.S. Treasury uh, before she had married um, <clears throat> Victor. Uh, she was there as an advisor um, to the government. And I was in Moscow, and Kathy calls me up, and she says, Richard, you've got to come down here. We're in a horrible situation. We've got this hyperinflation going on. And nobody knows what to do. And I had other things to do in Moscow, but she persuaded me to come on down. I came on down, and I had known Victor a little bit in some of his trips to the U.S. beforehand. And he was getting ulcers, and it was just a a terrible situation because they were saying inflation was a percent an hour. And when you were giving these percentages, I never understood how anybody actually measured these kind. when, When they get up to those kind of rates, I mean, how do you know? except our breakfast menu, each morning, you know, the eggs were about twice as much as they were the, the previous morning, so we knew there was a problem. <laughs> um, so I, got, I went over to the central bank and sat down with Victor and his people, and I wanted to find out what was going on, you know, why they were expanding the money supply so much. And as I started just talking with people, I saw they had no clue of how money had value and that wasn't the first time I had encountered that. I know you encountered this in a number of these countries. From the old communist system, the people, you know, they had no notion of money having value or how it was actually had value because the ideal with uh, Marx and Lenin and so forth was to abolish money. You know, they, if you go back, they wanted to abolish money. That was part of the lunacy of the whole system. So there, wasn't, there were not people there who really understood how money had value. And we, we saw that in many of these countries. Um, well, basically, the bottom line was in Ukraine, the problem was the central bank was not the only uh, provider of money that any government department, the defense ministry, the agricultural ministry, could just write out their own checks. And the parliament was passing endless spending. It reminds me a lot of the U.S. Congress over the last few months You know, they just had an endless checkbook writing out things, and that's where the various departments were. I I went over and talked to Minister of Defense, and he, when he needed something, he just issued this. And the central bank then was supposed to actually provide the money, but there was no budgetary control at all. Um, And it's interesting how you get into these various hyperinflations. Well, uh, I tend to be a long-run optimist, despite what's going on at the time, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a, a techie and have been involved in technology companies over the years, and I see technology often can get around or leap over government incompetence, and one of my favorite devices now is this BlackBerry, which I'm totally addicted to, and I keep trying to think of how much this has increased productivity and actually has offset uh, basically inflationary monetary policy, just because of the huge productivity gains we get out of blackberries and a lot of the other uh, devices we now have. And when I was reading George's book, I was thinking about this because he's got a long discussion there of how one reason the private minters were so much better than the Royal Mint is they had adopted the most recent technology, the steam engine. And the Royal Mint was still out there, you know, people hammering these out there, uh, coin by coin. And while the, uh, the private minters had developed the steam, uh, found how they could use a steam engine to really knock off huge quantities of these coins, which were needed at the early days of the Industrial Revolution. Well, we have now, we don't have the shortage of coin, but I think technology can enable us to actually overcome what I see is the coming inflation not only here but in most other countries around the world. Basically, the problem is you look at the huge issuance, or it's in the pipeline now, of of bonds that will have to be sold by governments. I think the U.S. government now is running a deficit of about $150 billion a month. I guess in April that will really jump up as they do the income tax refunds. but I was in Britain a few weeks ago, and the British are going to be issuing another trillion and a half of bonds over the next couple of years with their stimulus package. And many European countries have, quote, stimulus packages. And um, the Chinese even have a stimulus package. The Japanese are very deep trouble. Their economy has been dropping at about a 12% annualized rate. Their uh, debt-GDP ratio Will be over 200 percent by the end of this year. We were at about 37 uh, percent last year. We will jump up, what I think about 78 percent or so, and any of you know precisely or what the estimate is now, by the end of this year with all the new issuance. Um, we are funding 40 percent of our expenditure this year by debt. So the question is who is going to buy all these bonds that are being issued? And what kind of interest rates will we have to get to sell those bonds? And, of course, the central banks will be the buyers of last resort. But anyway, this is not going to be pleasant. But I expect the innovators will look at digital alternatives of building various types of money in commodity baskets. And baskets, if they use, let's say, the euro, the dollar, the yen, the pound, and so forth, of indexing the individual uh, monies in the basket to give you more of a constant. And for your monetary conference, I'm going to lay this out in much greater detail of exactly how it can be done and what I think is the, the technological way around this. We've had the huge problem with government's now trying to clamp down on tax competition, which is another thing that saved us. Dan Mitchell here at the Cato Institute and I have been uh, uh, been heavily involved in this effort to try to keep us reasonably free. But getting back to George's book, it is a great addition to the literature. Um, it's it's fun to read about how the government officials uh, 200 years ago are acting or acted exactly the way the people in our government do today. And I was as I was reading your book and talking when you were discussed of how the people at the the Bank of uh, the Royal the Bank of England were resisting the type of changes and doing all the wrong things. And I was just visualizing if you put Barney Frank and Chris Dodd in a wig <laughs> in wigs from <laughs> And looking like the, the British officials of 200 years ago, the behavior is identical. And with that, I'll end.
0: Thanks very much, Richard. Uh, since you mentioned the Monetary Conference, I should probably uh, let you know that the Cato's Annual Monetary Conference, which is the 27th Annual Monetary Conference, uh, which I started running when I was about 10 years old, uh, is going to be on restoring global financial stability. And it'll be, it'll be here at Cato on November 19th. And uh, it's, it'll be posted on a website. I think it might be up there now. Uh, and the program will be finalized within the next couple weeks. So uh, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to take a, take a look at it. Uh, we're pretty much right on time, thanks to, uh, to our speakers here. And um, what we'd like to do now is um, – I think Steve wanted to uh, take a minute to uh, to uh, say something, and uh, then we'll go into the uh, question and answer period. And uh, I think we have about 20-25 minutes for that, and then we'll go upstairs for lunch. So uh, you can take the questions seated, uh, right. and uh, if you just uh, after Steve gets done, uh, I'll start taking questions. But just raise your hand and. Um, Just if you could identify yourself and your uh, organization and uh, keep the questions uh, pointed uh, and uh, no speeches. (laughs) Steve?
2: Actually, Richard reminded me of something that, again, shows how relevant this book is, and that is uh, in in 1990, I can remember uh, one of the early times that I'd gone into the Bulgarian National Bank to see the governor, to talk about, you know, a a currency reform and and what they had to do. Uh, Another issue came up that that was really riveting and and took a lot of time, and that is at at that time the largest note circulating in Bulgaria was a 10-11 note. I've got one in my office. It's a little tiny thing, you know, uh, (laughs) miniature kind of size, but it—it was—I it, can't remember what it was worth right now, off the top of my head. But almost nothing. So you'd have to have like a semi truck to to buy, you know, your weekly groceries or something like that. So I said, well, the you know the biggest thing, and I didn't use the private alternative, but there is a private alternative in this story. Uh, I said, you know, you've, you've got to get some big denomination notes. You know, there's a huge note shortage. That's the immediate thing that's riling the public up and so forth. So I walk out of the Bulgarian National Bank, and and some guy in those days, you know, you, you had guys, Voluta, you know, exchange, exchange in the front. So I went up and started talking to the guy, and he was speaking a little English. He was, for, he was a Polak. He was a Polish guy. And so... I said, "Well, you know, what kind of rates you you have for exchange?" And he said, "Well, what what denomination left do you want?" And I and I said, "Well, I don't know. What do you have?" And he says, "Well, what do you want? A hundred, fifty, ten? You know." So there there was a private alternative that was that was taking place, but uh, if you were stupid enough to realize that uh, or not realize that ten was the the limit, and they hadn't re-denominated anyway. That's the We'll
3: an I, I, I just want to add one thing, because Steve and I were out there working there roughly the same time, and I had a fellow working for me, and he spent most of his day running around town doing money exchange. And Genshaw would have this briefcase, and we'd go off like we went off to lunch or something. And he would come in, and he was the guy with the briefcase just for us to have lunch and open up and take these huge wads of bills. Remember, over the Sheridan Hotel, he'd be in there the exchanging. Yeah. He spent his whole day for us running around doing money exchange, and you start to look at the cost of that in that kind of society.
0: <clears throat> I think uh, Don, you had a question.
3: Yeah, uh, George Richards' mention
4: of productivity and inflation uh, brought to mind your earlier pamphlet. Yeah, uh, so, uh, Richards' mention of of uh, productivity and inflation brought to mind your 1997 pamphlet, less than zero. And so just briefly, can you explain why we shouldn't? I mean, there's a lot of fear of deflation. And is that fear justified?
1: Well, there's actually two questions now, because one refers to uh, that relate to deflation. Uh, let, me, let me first answer the, the last question you asked, and then let me say something about what Richard said. Uh, and uh, that... That concerns deflation right now. There's been a collapse of spending of some sort, and that means demand's been low, which means there's a, a, a kind of deflation happening uh, lately, very recently, really, uh, that is troublesome because when demand shrinks, uh, you, you can have not just falling prices, which are themselves a good response to declining demand, the kind that that's you need. Uh, but also some decline in sales and output and employment, which, of course, we're also experiencing. Now, if deflation is driven, on the other hand, by increasing productivity, more goods as opposed to fewer dollars being spent, then that deflation is perfectly desirable. It's not something that you want to avoid uh, uh, by printing money. Which brings me to Richard's comment. Uh, Yes, the Fed can get away with more money creation when there's productivity growth, uh, but uh, we don't want it to. We want prices to fall then, and uh, and and so it's a bit misleading to say, "Well, uh, we we can afford more inflation." Actually, you can't because, relatively speaking, you need deflation in in times of uh, great productivity growth or positive productivity growth. And the damage done by, say, keeping prices even stable when productivity is growing 3% instead of letting them fall in that case by 3% is exactly the same kind of damage and trouble done by having positive inflation of 3% when there's no productivity growth, and so on. So the real true inflation rate that matters, as it were, is the actual observed inflation rate plus the rate of productivity growth. That needs to be as close to zero as possible. And I don't think Richard said anything that was inconsistent with that. But the Fed often says, we've got more productivity growth, so yay, we can print more money. And that's misleading.
3: In fact, Greenspan was sort of explicit on that. They do, yeah. During the the uh, the Great Boom. During the Great Boom, that he was talking about how the Fed policy wasn't inflationary because we had this huge productivity growth there for a few years. Right, and but, he's right, but it should have been deflationary. To some
2: some me, me, yeah. yeah, Jim, may I uh, on the the point that Don raised uh, there. The fact is that there are good deflations and bad deflations. The only bad deflation we've had around the world that I'm aware of, and these things have been cataloged, is the Great Depression. When you had the money supply from 1929 to 1933 going down by about a third, and real interest rates peaking in 1932 at 16%. <laughs> it was just incredible the demand for money drops and so you you know you, you drop, drop collapse of supply at the same time and of course the real interest rates go up So this made a, a very a great impression I think on, on US economists and, and Bernanke in particular and Bernanke gave a speech in November of 2002 where he, he I can't remember it had deflation in the title I can't remember the exact title of the thing but but he he made the case that the biggest threat facing the United States was deflation and and he was obsessed with the experience of bad deflation during the great depression there've been the a, a survey of over 100 deflations of the past deflations and that's the only one that that was bad all the rest of the deflations are good with the productivity innovation and all these things going on at the same time so my Suggestion is that that speech did convince Greenspan shortly thereafter and and the uh, uh, fed governors that deflation was a problem and remember there was a statistical fluke the the actual measured core inflation went down a little less than one percent at exactly that time it was a st- it ended up being corrected but they, they absolutely hit the panic button, and, the, and that's when they should have been tightening and driving Fed funds rates up. And remember, by July of 2003, Fed funds rate had then hit a record low of 1%. And that, that's the origin of the bubble. The credit boom was strictly connected to Bernanke's obsession with bad deflation and, uh, and, and Greenspan's buying into this thing and trying to fight deflation. what what you think the prospects for inflation in the United States are uh, for the next uh, two or three years. Uh, and if you want a target to uh, shoot at, uh, a friend uh, of mine who is known to all four of you uh, uh, said to me on inaugural day that 10% inflation was already baked into the cake before uh, uh, any uh, – before the uh, – uh, Obama regime did anything before the uh, Fed did any further damage, 10 percent inflation. He couldn't predict when it would come exactly or how, but he th- said it was baked into the cake. Well, I, I – yeah. how do you want to do this, Jim? Why don't do you have
0: Richard, and, and –
2: uh, Well, I think a, lo- a lot's probably baked in the cake. It depends on what the Fed actually does. Now, they remember – the, once the, the panic occurred, the demand for dollar liquidity uh, uh, skyrocketed and, and, uh, 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 and, and the Fed made a lot of liquidity available. I mean, since, since August, they've gone from a little over $800 billion the size of the balance sheet to almost $2 trillion. So So they have a big balance sheet. And, and I think the economy is about ready to snap back. Because usually in these sharp panics, uh, we, we end up with kind of the, the Czarnowitz rule is that if you get a sharp panic falling, you're going to get a sharp snapback in the economy. So I, I think earlier rather than later, the economy will start snapping back. And commodity prices have already stabilized the first week in December. So, so you're going to have uh, – there is a lot of inflation that will come along with this snapback. Now, the problem and this is Bill Niskanen in his latest, uh, what is that, Cato Letters or Cato Policy report. report? The latest policy report, if you pick that up, Bill's got a good article in there. And and he pointed out that the danger is that the Fed won't shrink the balance sheet fast enough to react to this as, as the demand for money drops We know as the economy snaps back, what happens? The money demand drops and the money multiplier starts skyrocketing on you and velocity starts going up. So Bill pointed out that we've got Bernanke's term ending in January of 2010 and you've got congressional elections coming up in the fall of 2010. So the Fed will be very reluctant to do balance sheet shrinking because, remember, when the balance sheet shrinks, this, this is going to be a very tricky maneuver. We know in principle that it has to Everybody knows this, and the timing, we can debate about it. But the reality is, if you look at balance sheet shrinking after quantitative easing, and you look at, like, Japan in 2006, the, what, what does that mean? That means the, the central bank has to sell a, a lot of bonds. And, and as they sell bonds, what happens? The price of bonds goes down and the yield goes up and the whole term structure, the locus of the term structure of interest rates goes up. Well, that, that's going to push us probably, I agree completely with Bill's conclusion, that we'll, we'll probably face kind of a W-shaped recovery. So we start snapping back. Inflation comes in. They'll sit on their budget, the, this big bloated balance sheet for too long and it is in that sense, under that scenario, it is baked in the cake. If they wait too long, and and then they will come in and and start shrinking the balance sheet, selling bonds, driving bond prices down, yields up, and we'll go into then to another recession. So. There's where you get the W-shaped thing. But it it depends on what they do. I mean, it isn't necessarily baked in the cake. If they started shrinking the balance sheet aggressively now, which they won't, I I don't think that is a likely scenario. I mean, this is just not, probably not going to happen. So it probably means the most likely scenario is, uh, as Richard pointed out in his piece today, which I haven't had time to read, even though I do pay 50 cents for that paper every day. (laughs) Or whatever the subscription rate is, I, I agree that it, it, it probably is baked in the cake and, and the way you invest on this, I, I, I remain very bullish on gold, even though it's, it's been knocked around recently and, and the, the, also the treasury inflation adjusted, uh, inflation index securities. So I, I think that's where to be if this is, if you think this W thing is really uh, the most likely scenario. I wouldn't hold any bonds. Hey, I mean, no except Treasury, and, and, and unless the index. I, I wouldn't. Under this scenario, unless you were a trader, if you were a kind of a, a slow investor, not turning over your portfolio very much, you, you wouldn't want to be in nominal bonds because as they shrink the balance sheet, we know bond prices are going to tumble. Richard, did you want to?
3: Well, I, I agree exactly with what Steve said. And again, for those of you who don't want to take notes on this uh just pick up the column today, and it, it's based on the uh, scannon hankey economics, because we all agree on that. We have a friend and colleague, Warren Coates, who had been at the Fed and the IMF for many years. He disagrees somewhat. He keeps arguing that Bernanke and company can bring out, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, withdraw the money quickly enough so you'll not get your 10 percent scenario, I think. Warren's up about 5%. I've got a running bet with him on this. In terms of the trigger, um, I think there's a trigger being baked in that's going to hit quicker, uh, and that is oil prices. And I did a piece on this a month or so ago. The present price of oil, about $50 a barrel, you look at the long run of, of lifting cost, the marginal lifting cost of how much oil you can bring up at that. In the same way, it takes us a long time to expand oil supplies. It also t- takes a while to actually shut things down. And there has been a lot of shutting down now going on. And as the Chinese economy, we are seeing the Asian economies other than Japan already starting to come back, as they pick up, and it is still the growth of oil. Uh, auto ownership, particularly in Asia, is expanding, that demand for oil and gasoline is going to come back, and the difference between how much is produced and how much we consume is very small. In the same way we got that very sharp rise up uh, a couple of years ago, and we had then they had the big fall, well, <clears throat> the Canadian uh, oil sands, a lot of that production is being slowed down or I'm betting that the oil prices will come back very sharply sometime over the next few months. could even be as early as this summer. And as Steve pointed out, commodity prices have already bottomed out. They're starting to rise again. And people now have built up these big cash balances, individuals, companies, and everything else, because people see deflation and it makes sense to sit on cash during deflation. But suddenly the articles will start to appear after oil prices go up, and price of oil got up is not inflation, but people confuse these, and they'll start to talk about the new inflation. That time people will want to get rid of these cash balances, which will fuel this, and that's why I think the idea of the W recession going up, down, back up is right on the money. And I think that's the, that's the thing we'll notice, and at that point I think we can get this mini-boom, which will clearly turn into a little inflationary boom. some point, the Fed is going to have to put the brakes on, and I think your political scenario is right on, and we're going to have a continuing mess over the next three or four years.
0: Uh, George, do you want to add anything to that? I just want to remind everybody that um, a friend of mine sent me the uh, five or six key economic forecasts from 2008, one of which was Barney Frank's forecast that – Fannie and Freddie were in perfectly sound condition. So at Cato, we don't make too many forecasts, but that's why George's book is so important, because it looks at economic history, and it derives lessons from the economic history. And I think uh, one of the key lessons today is, what's the future of government fiat money? Um, I don't expect the hyperinflation in the United States, but if we have a serious inflation, uh, what does it take to make the transition from a government fiat money to... uh, a private competitive system I how do you get from one to the other I, maybe george wants to discuss that for a second
1: well i i uh i, I don't think i'll chime in on what's going to happen uh most partly cuz uh i'd like to talk about my book but uh but uh but 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 uh the the uh the thing that uh and this relates to the the book the thing that i'm interested in is is something a little bit different than the usual discussion. We can, uh, and it's important to discuss uh, what the Fed is up to, and even how we could make it do a better job. I've, I've been engaged in a lot of discussions myself of that on that, and I've written about it. But the bottom line is that the the question you want to have these discussions about how to handle uh, an economic crisis and how to deal with it and what to predict about it. You want to keep having him every 10 years or not? If you don't, you've got to ask yourselves, how, how, how can we get away from a kind of institutional arrangement that keeps confronting us with these same questions, sometimes in a more severe context and sometimes less? Look, seven, five years ago, two years ago even, but let's say three anyway... Uh, People were talking as if the problem of central banking and monetary management had been solved because, after all, look at what Alan Greenspan's done, see? And uh, and I think that if you'd taken a poll at that time, many would have put him on the top of the list of the world's greatest central bankers. Now, that itself isn't much of an argument for central banking unless you could find... Uh, someone who was an excellent central banker who you liked, who also would uh, live forever. But um, the fact is that this great central banker has proven to be uh, something of a, to have something, uh, feet of of clay or something like that. And uh, we'll get worse. So what I want people to ask themselves is, can we have a better system? And the reason I Uh, wrote the book is because they can't, we won't be able to ask, people won't ask that question until their imaginations have been fired up and they can see that there are alternative ways to run monetary systems. The coinage is trivial, I know today, but it's not about coins, it's not about notes, it's not about any particular kind of money. It's the principle that we don't need to entrust money to government. We can have the private sector do it. And with respect to any particular money but to money as a whole, we can look at evidence and ask whether it does a better job. Right now the policy debate is all about what the federal funds rate should be, and now lately what assets the Fed should buy and how much it sh- and who it should buy them from. But the debate ought to also be about real alternatives, because I'm telling you, I don't make forecasts. I'm not one of the economists who believes that he can do those, and I do think some people are good at it, but not me. But I will forecast one thing. I don't care what anyone comes up with with regard to this crisis, as long as they're dealing with in that limited frame of alternatives, it's not going to be the last, and it might not even be the worst that we see in our lifetime. So... We need to broaden this discussion.
0: Um, I wanted to call on Kurt Schuler for a minute to see if Kurt has any comments on the book because Kurt's an expert uh, in this area. Kurt, did you want to say anything? Or
4: thanks. I'm um, uh, Kurt Schuler from the Treasury Department, and. Uh, Yes, uh, for all of you who have not read the book, it is. It's it's, it's very it's it's very well written. It's an e- it's a, it's an easy read. Uh, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, not a comment, but just a a a question, which is um, uh, George and also, uh, uh, Steve also mentioned some uh, cur- currency shortages. Um, uh, has there been? Has there been a systematic study of of these that you're aware of first of all is there is has anybody ever tried to has gone through and catalogued a bunch of these cases and and second uh probably more important uh if if the first question answer to the first question is yes has anybody tried to um draw some kind of lessons from them in terms of policy in the way that you have done in this book for this particular case
1: well so uh kurt um as far as coin shortages go, historically, uh, Tom Sargent and Francois Veld, in their book uh, that came out a, a couple years, bef- uh, several years before mine, on the big problem of small change, they have an episodic discussion of uh, of coin shortages in the past, and uh, their claim was that that when you got the steam technology, that helped to solve the problems underlying the coin shortages. In fact, uh, it wasn't steam technology. It is impressive that the private sector came up with that technology and for a while had a far more sophisticated modern mint uh, than any government. But the fact is a lot of these private coins produced in the episode I talk about were produced with, with manual presses. So you didn't need to have steam presses, but in any event, what th- that book doesn't consider is how crucial it is to have competition in coinage, to to, to, to really assure an adequate coin supply. Now, t- Sargent and Veld's book, because of their thesis about the steam engine, kind of cuts off at 1810 or something with the problem solved. Well, no, it hasn't been. Steve mentioned Argentina, which has been in the uh, 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 grip of a, cur- a coin shortage uh, For some time now, and there have been many coin shortages throughout modern history, including some in the United States that perhaps some of you (laughs) remember, right? Of various denominations of coins. Italy's had a few nasty ones. Uh, The other kinds of uh, shortages of money that Steve talked about, the banknote shortages, usually we see those in hyperinflations where the presses just can't keep up, right? And so those are extreme. But of course, if you have that kind of shortage, the shortage is a problem. But it's the problem on top of an even more severe underlying problem of the incredible inflation. So um, no one, as far as I know, has tried to catalog them all um, as a specific top a topic, Kurt. Of you know, uh, to to put them all together and analyze them. Though the Sergeant Veld is a start. Uh, but it doesn't cover the modern
2: episodes. Steve, did you want to say anything about that? Or? No. I, yes, I, I do, but I, I think I better not. Uh,
0: uh, one, I have one Richard, up. go ahead.
3: Um, <clears> over <throat> the last few years, Cayman has had a penny shortage, and basically they didn't produce enough official pennies. They used the U.S. penny as the substitute. But I had mentioned the penny now costs about 2 cents to produce, Came Ireland penny is about the same size as the U.S. penny, but as you continue to have inflation, these low denomination coins will be costing more to produce, even though they no longer have silver and uh, even copper, or they're made out of cheaper metals. Um, and even then, you can't produce them cheap enough, given the de- uh, the decline in the value of the currency and came and talked about dropping the penny. We've talked about dropping the penny here in the U.S. because we've had some of these same problems. Came and they were trying to get the school children to take the jars of pennies people have at their home and bring them in and stuff like that. And I think we've had a couple episodes of similar types of things here in the U.S., but it'll be interesting to see how we'll deal with this problem over the next few years on uh, virtually all the U.S., um, countries who have the US dollar use US type coinage. Yep. Uh
2: I I well just make a reference to to one thing I I think it's very important that uh that we we might all be aware of the Fed's role in creating the bubble the, the credit boom and the and and eventually the 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 bursting bubble. But if you really look at the press on this, and, and, and you, they, they, they have been snowed completely by Greenspan's relentless campaign to say the Fed didn't have anything to do with it. And you read people, all these Fed guys, like I remember Alan Blinder, had a vice, former vice chairman of the Fed and, and professor at Princeton, uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times a few months ago, and he, he said the six errors that led to the crisis – and and the the major enabler, the Fed, was not on the list. Right. I mean, these guys are just unbelievable. And, and 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 until they're nailed and and forced to confess and 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 guilty as charged, we, we we will never get the policy debate sorted out at all. It's a little like George the private versus public, uh, you know, provision of money thing. Because what if. If the Fed didn't cause it, well, you got to regulate more because you had lax regulation, and you you've got to do ten million other things that have nothing to do with the Fed. Who who is pointing a finger at the Fed and even asking not about public versus private, but just the rule they follow and 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 what they should be doing going forward? No, no one. It's not part of the discourse at all.